Is Johnny Gould's Jewish state for those who listen, for those who are willing to listen? I will tell you a joke. My uh, academic friend uh, from uh, an Arab country, he told me, "You, the Jewish, I saw you in the street since January. In fact, since January, you can see thousands of Israelis in the street." He said. We have no no murders, no uh, dead people, no wounded people. Why? Why? He said, there's someone else from Egypt. He said, in the first week that uh, we went to uh, the street, we had uh, 30 uh, guys killed. You don't uh, kill each other. Why? I spent much of July and early August 2023 traveling through Israel. I met with a member of the Likud government in their Knesset meeting room, a retired Mossad veteran, an IDF major talking with unsettling certainty about the next conflict coming from Lebanon. And many people of every background on the streets of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. The routines of national life, both frivolous and serious, aren't breaking down. The army isn't patrolling in place of the cops. There's no curfews. Midsummer, the bustling streets are full in Israel's major cities. Families aren't looking across Shabbat tables from each other with hatred in their eyes. I sat among about a hundred groups in our hotel amid the timeless rituals of homely chaos. No, the nation is not at civil war because the rhythms of Israeli and by extension Jewish life continue. The daily, weekly, annual reminders of our calendar preservers. Yet the media highlights extremes on both sides, while the rest of the country looks on. And if the camera panned out from the procession of protest flags, you'd see the rest of Israel getting on with itself. Now that's not to say the political, even journalistic battlefield of judicial reform isn't serious. It is. It's a fork in the road. A reset of how Jewish democracy will look. Either way, democracy isn't perfect. Both sides have their shortcomings. And their entrenched positions conceal the reality. Even an understanding that Israel needs a reshape to its political settlement. The first 75 years will look nothing like the next 75. God willing, inshallah. Israel's place in the region and in an increasingly multipolar world has also shifted. And there are fault lines in a society which has achieved so much based on unity, if not uniformity. Like the Western country you live in, social mobility is a growing concern in Israel. It isn't spreading through the population as it used to. The unrestrained hysteria, almost gleeful demagoguery of the protest side is fanned by international media. The unsympathetic chorus invites senior Israeli figures screaming civil war to get their clickbait. Ehud Olmert, ex-convict, former prime minister, with nothing left to lose. He's lost pretty much everything in politics, 
delighting the hum of anti-Zionism of the UK's Channel 4 News who happily give him a soapbox. Senior reservists are refusing to report for national service. The IDF, the unifying force which was always above it all, is being politicised. Serving well into their 50s and 60s, voluntarily, long past any legal requirement or obligation, some say, no more. We agreed to serve a liberal democracy and we will not risk our lives at the behest of an autocracy or worse, dictatorship. Placing such conditions on national service creates future problems. And the Declaration of Independence describes Israel as a Jewish state without the bolt-on of liberal democracy. So Hezbollah and Hamas are ramping up the war rhetoric. They smell weakness. Moody's, the credit ratings agency, is living up to its billing. Inward investment is cooling. Actually, after a bumper 2021, the investment correction started before the Netanyahu government won power. Netanyahu's Knesset superiority, whilst elected by the people, embraces minority extremists as a tail wagging the dog. The proposed reforms make winners and losers out of society. Meanwhile, Who's going to tell the protesters the 15-strong, unelected clique of Ashkenazim with one Israeli Arab represents the people? They have the power to dismiss the Prime Minister. Liberal tears comes to Israel. Since the election of Donald Trump and Brexit in the UK, here is the meltdown of the liberal establishment in Israel. The startup nation's engine room looks outward in every one of its multi-million dollar pitches. A few slides in, each one identifies Israel as, quotes, a zero marketplace. Startup Nation Central, a smart office block on Lillianbloom Street in Tel Aviv, has the seven-figure apartments going up in a tower right across the street. And who's buying those? No one hurrying past them late for their restaurant shift or the middle manager in the Azrieli Tower, that's for sure. The startup class say they want to leave. Sure, 28% are willing to talk a good game. No figure within that who'd actually commit to it if the chips were really down. And for those aspirationals, t'was ever thus. Their PowerPoints a wish list to dream big and imaginary somewhere else if they win the investment lottery. All around the West, there's a class of people pulling up the drawbridge to protect their own, identifying with each other in a giant echo chamber They think their interests are the only national interest. Yet, Israel's long-term survival in the Middle East does need to maintain its modernist elite. After all, high-tech is the melody of normalization. Israel's industries help solve problems in the wider region, strengthen and underpin regional governments, including countering the common threat of Iran. But startup nation is elitist. Much of society is closed to this economic engine, Entry points are narrow indeed, because none of these creed occurs from the liberal influences like Yossi Klein Halevi and Thomas L. Friedman account for the millions of Israelis, the majority, who have nowhere to go. Blue-collar guys and girls in Cholon and other towns further north, the mixed cities of Haifa and Lod, the big Israeli-Arab cities you've never even heard of, economically disconnected from Israel's scale of nation, they aren't leaving. And rather inconveniently for those who wish to keep the narrow band of unelected judges as Israel's check and balance, it's they who vote for Bibi in their millions and who wouldn't countenance for a minute 
not serving as their fathers and mothers did before them. And like the binary schism going on near you, it's not just working-class Israelis, the well-to-dos born into ideals which put the IDF and national unity above politics are not joining the protests either. Protesters claim Israel's looking increasingly like its neighbours, other autocratic states which ignore their citizens. No one's died, no rubber bullets, no curfews. The basic law framework threatens to be abused, though. And if one side wins, Israel will lose, says President Isaac Herzog. Israel can only survive with consensus and unity to keep punching above its weight. And there is merit on both sides. And in a binary schism just as this, good people coalesce alongside those you'd rather give a wide berth to. But what strikes me is the faithlessness in the protest side, the worst-case scenario, the language which gets practised in boycotts, roadblocks, strikes and rhetoric which crosses the line. When will more respect be shown to the Haredim, whose Torah values are a component of the nation, the point of difference between Israel and every nation on earth? Trouble is, there's a column of Israelis who are determinedly secular, who hate the religious. They have more room to do that in Israel. We can't do that as much as a minority around the diaspora. Today's guest says the term civil war is a useful device to maintain the pressure on both sides to find a solution. Time for some realpolitik. There's no one with more outreach into the Arab world from Israel than Dr. Eddie Cohen. He tweets almost exclusively in Arabic and has over 570,000 followers. Eddie is a historian, a commentator, a world authority on Holocaust denial in the Arab world, Islamist terrorism and the history of Jewish communities in the Arab world. Eddie grew up in Beirut, but in 1991, his Arab society became too hostile. So Eddie and his family were forced to flee for their lives. As a native speaker and tweeter in Arabic, Eddie crosses media divides communicating directly with Arab audiences, tweeting them with perspectives on Israel and Jewish people and our religion they'd never get at home. And he's a PhD in Middle Eastern history from Bar Ilan University. His book, The Holocaust in the Eyes of Mahmoud Abbas in 2017, exposes the PA's Holocaust denial. And The Mufti and the Jews, his connections to the Nazis, reveals brand new evidence of a 1943 plan to assist in the extermination of the Jews in Mandate Palestine if the Germans had won World War II. The Allies won the Battle of El Alamein and so the Holocaust didn't spread in any meaningful sense into the Middle East and the Maghreb, where a million more Jews would have suffered the same fate as their brothers and sisters in Europe. This is the third time Dr. Eddie Cohen's joined me but the first time we've met face-to-face in Israel. So let's talk about the collision of events which may lead to the end of the Arab-Israeli conflict, the horrible burning of holy books in Sweden, and what on earth does Israel have to do with Morocco's territorial ambitions in the Western Sahara? 
and stay tuned for Professor Chuck Freilich on the offer between the US, the Saudis and the Israelis. It is my absolute pleasure to be in the presence of Eddie Cohen for the very first time here on the Tayelet in Tel Aviv. It's nice to be here, sir. Nice to meet you in person at last. Welcome, uh, Johnny. Welcome to Israel. Baruch Abba. It's a very honor to meet you, finally. You are not a virtual. Uh, you are a basar vedam. <laughs> Proof, indeed, that I do exist in reality. Israel is going through a domestic turmoil, but I'm delighted to say if you pan the camera out, all the talk of civil war is rhetoric. People don't hate each other here. This is what we call in Yiddish another broigus, isn't it? Well, we cannot deny that everything is okay. No, we have problems. Well, tell, I will tell you a joke. My... Uh, academic friend uh, from uh, an Arab country, he told me, you the Jewish, I saw you in the street since January. In fact, since January, you can see thousands of Israelis in the street. He said, you have no, no murders, no uh, dead people, no wounded people. Why? Why? He said, there's someone else from Egypt. He said, in the first week that uh, we went to uh, the street, we had uh, 30 uh, guys killed. You don't uh, kill each other. Why? So I told him that we, we have a, a political uh, a structure problem. We have a struggle between the court supreme and the Knesset in the parliament. We have problems. Uh, we cannot deny it. Fortunately, this is relatively calm, and I hope that... Uh, they will, it, it would be calmer, how we say, in the future. Uh, the enemies, Johnny, our enemies, want to, to see blood. Yeah. They want to see us killing each other. They are uh, wondering why you are not killing, killing each, each other. So I hope that all of these things will not, will not become violence. Because the rhetoric of Jewish people is fiery. We are a disputatious people. We like to argue, but that argument is our strength. We are a flat society. You know, when you go into a synagogue, whether the billionaire is there or the pauper's there, they've all got their talit on. We all look the same. We all daven to the same Hashem, a lord or a pauper. So that is our strength, that we are a flat society. So we argue together together. We are a true progressive society, and I think people always misunderstand that about the Jews. They always look, oh, they're arguing again. But actually, that's our strength, isn't it? Yes, you are right, especially in the diaspora, in Jewish diaspora. But let me uh, tell you something else. Here in Israel, it's not like the diaspora. Here we are less united. Mm. Here uh, uh, there are some people that hate the religion. In diaspora, you can't, you can't see a, a Jewish anti, anti-religion. Yeah, because they marry out and they disappear. <laughs> I mean, that's the truth. Yes, but uh, it's, it's uh, not common to see Jewish uh, uh, slamming the uh, religion or the religious people. Here in Israel, to say that we are killing each other, there's a long way uh, from that. So, Eddie, my oracle, where does the solution come from? Does it come from Isaac Herzog? 
or does it come from the senior people in the Likud party? Because the first 75 years of liberal democracy for Israel is changing. We cannot deny that what existed in the past, the Israeli Labour Party power of the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s changed with Begin, the old establishment, perhaps the Ashkenazi establishment, is coming to an end. We have to really understand in this new multipolar world that maybe, maybe this time is absolutely necessary. Where is the solution, Eddie? This is what a, a Supreme Court judge don't want to get it. Let's speak about the Supreme Court. You have 15 judges. One of them is Arabs. 14, they are Ashkenaz. Why you don't have a Moroccan Jew judge? A Lebanese, a Syrian, Iraqi. The ergonomy, it's bad. It's bad. It looks bad. Mm-hmm. We have to change it. So Herzog, he was, he, was, he was with the other side. He was with the oppositions. He was not a fair um, mediator. Everyone knows this. The Supreme Court has a lot of power. They can dismiss a prime minister. They can cancel a law. So it's, it's a lot of power. No one gave them this power. They took the power. It's against the law sometimes what they, the Supreme Court makes decision. Mm. So all what we want is some uh, reforms. The opposition says this is democracy, democracy. I will remind you, when David Ben-Gurion proclaimed the state of Israel, he didn't say a democratic state. He said, I want a Jewish state. The word democrat is not in the Megillat Atzma'ut. It's not written in the independence, uh, how is it? The Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence. You could not hear it from David Ben-Gurion. So we want a Jewish state, first of all, then a democratic state. It does look that over time, the demography will lean towards the Netanyahu side. They will have to make the reforms much less brutal and much slower than they've tried to. But it does look inevitable that the protest side are on the side which will eventually have to succumb to the Netanyahu inevitability. Now, a lot of people listening to this won't like that, but this does have the contours of a similar row that we had in Britain of the remain and leave. Remain being the protesters and leave being the Netanyahu side. That's going to maybe maybe make a few people angry, but it does seem that sort of argument, doesn't it? The Trump side are with Netanyahu, the Biden side, Obama side are with the protesters. Would you broadly agree with that yes. uh, brushstroke of schism? Yes, the protest becomes uh, like uh, Likud versus uh, the opposition. It, it became now a um, confessional Ashkenazi against Sephardi. Tragedy. Tragedy. A kibbutz uh, people against the periphery. You know, we, we are 75 years old in Israel. The, the state is 75 years old. We had uh, uh, racism against uh, Mizrahi and Sephardi during the 50s and during the 60s also. We cannot deny it. Let's say it clearly. And we didn't correct these things. We didn't 
repair these things. One of these things is that a structure of the court are most of them Ashkenaz. And you cannot find a Mizrahi judge in the Supreme Court. It's unbelievable and unacceptable. You're going to fill in your job application, Eddie. I'm lawyer. not a lawyer. No, I'm yeah. not a lawyer. Uh, I like, uh, I, uh, as you know, I have uh, political ambitions. I am from the Likud. I would be the next candidate to the uh, MK uh, in the Likud uh, in the next elections. I hope that there will be no elections. Netanyahu has 64, as you said. He is the majority. He has 64 they want democracy? Okay, we are, we are 64, and they are 46. Who, who must rule? Who must uh, make laws? The majority, the Knesset, they don't accept it. They say that Netanyahu is anti-democratic, but it's false. Yes, this democratically elected government did insist that judicial reform was part of their manifesto, which they are seeing through. Shall we talk now about this extraordinary revelation that somehow the Joe Biden administration is going to carry out normalization between Israel and the Saudis? I am reading it and reading it. I have absolutely no idea how this has come about. Could Sleepy Joe carry on the incredible achievements of the Abraham Accords and the Donald Trump administration and bring upon us the end of war between the Sunni Muslim world and the Jewish state. Well, there is no war. Let's don't no, exaggerate. But you know what I mean. The... Tensions and uh, uh, political uh, rivalries. Uh, look, the Saudis they are upside down. I will tell you. They had a new relationship with Iran. They made yes, peace. A rapprochement. A rapprochement with the Iran. In the, in, the, for the, in the first day, I said, this rapprochement will not succeed. I said, and I tweeted also, uh, the Iranians uh, want to seize a gas, uh, uh, how would say, pipe. a gas yeah, pipe in the, in the frontier of Saudi and Kuwait. So the Iranian, they want uh, to steal the gas of the Kuwaitis and the Saudis Although this rapprochement, so it was a a, 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 a... <laughs> a reminder. A reminder for the Saudi that you cannot make peace in the rapprochement with the Iranis, with the, with so, the Irans. And of course the UAE... So the UAE made a rapprochement with the Iranians. You know, the Syrians, that butcher, that murderer from Damascus, is now invited to COP28, you know, and he's part of the Arab League. What are they doing? They still hate each other, right? So... Uh, the Saudis were surprised with this Iranian behavior. That's why they changed their mind and they come to Israel. It's, Israel is like, oh. a, is like a, a beautiful woman. That <laughs> yes, I love it. But that's the truth. The truth is that Israel is a beacon of stability and anyone who wants a legitimacy for their own government will partner with a stable government. Whatever the noise of judicial reform, Israel still is a determinedly stable governance. Yes, that's why MBS wants, as you said, he wants legitimacy, he wants to be the king, MBS, you know that. Yeah. So he was with the Russian side and with the Chinese side. 
when he had this problem with the Iran, I would say the ambition to take the gas, he went to the Chinese. The Chinese, you know them, they don't intervene. No, 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 I can't do anything. He went to Putin. He, said, he told them, look, the Iranian will take my gas. The Russian also, they buy drones from Iran. They don't want bad relations. So MBS has no choice. He went back. Uh, like a child to the, to Uncle Biden. <laughs> That's why suddenly there are things that happen, not like this. Yeah, I'm explaining why. Eddie's description of a collision of events coming together has triggered the White House anew. The tantalizing prospect of peace between Saudi and Israel in plain sight. After rejecting the idea months before, President Biden sent two leading negotiators out to the kingdom to see if a deal could be done. So what is the offer? It's bigger than Camp David, says Professor Chuck Freilich, Israel's former deputy national security advisor, a senior analyst at the Israeli Ministry of Defense, policy advisor to a cabinet minister, and delegate at the Israeli mission to the United Nations. He outlines here the win-win-win for the US, Saudi and Israel. But as with all peace deals, it's no free lunch. In fact, what's on the table is costly for Israel. Two senior Mideast officials to Saudi Arabia to talk to the Saudis about a package deal, which if it went through in many ways would be a win-win-win for all sides, for the United States, for Israel, for the Saudis, uh, I think for the Middle East as a whole. But there are no free lunches and there would be some considerable concessions also required by the different parties to this. What is different is the president willing to really consider it and, uh, see, and weighing apparently whether to launch a major initiative to get this through. And as I said, sending his two senior Mideast officials to Riyadh to sound out the Saudis. And the idea is that in exchange for Israel making some concessions on the Palestinian issue, major concessions, that it will never annex the West Bank, that no new settlements will be established and no, uh, some call it the illegal outposts or the uh, whatever the term for the outpost is, that they will not be legalized and that some parts of area C of the West Bank, in other words, the area that's under complete Israeli control, that some of that would be transferred to the Palestinians. So let me start off by saying there are major concessions required here of Israel, certainly from a right-wing government. But the Saudis, who would get a security pact from the United States, and the United States hasn't uh, signed a security pact with uh, any country since uh, the 19, early 1950s, they would get American approval to have a civil nuclear program with American monitoring, and they would get uh, access to the latest American arms. In exchange for which, they would normalize relations with Israel. Uh, they would be asked to make uh, major infusions of capital to the Palestinians to help build up the PA curtail their relations with China, which have been developing in recent months, and the U.S. is concerned about that. Of course, continue the 
de-escalation and hopefully a peace agreement in Yemen. And the Palestinian Authority would basically be asked to endorse the Saudi move. Now, the idea of Saudi-Israeli normalization, it goes way beyond the just the very, very big importance of Saudi-Israeli normalization. This is bigger than Camp David with the Egyptians, because Saudi Arabia is the heart of the entire Muslim world. Okay, It is the so-called keeper of the holy places, Mecca, Medina, the two holy cities. Shia or, or Sunni, everybody prays towards Mecca. And basically the feeling is that if the Saudis normalize relations with Israel, then basically everybody else in the Arab world, or almost everybody else, can follow step. And other major Muslim countries, such as Indonesia, Malaysia, Pakistan, all of which have played with the idea of normalizing with Israel, they need some dramatic move such as Saudi normalization to do it. This would essentially be the end of the Arab-Israeli conflict, big exception to Palestinian component, but in essence, it would be the end of the Arab-Israeli conflict and an opening to the entire Muslim world, a dramatic historic change in the history of the Mideast. So China's emergence into the vacuum that America left has suddenly sharpened minds between Israel and the Saudi to make peace. This is a great piece of fortune for Israel. And actually, even though this is not the same structure that Trump built with normalization, it is a consequence of normalization, but with different contours. I don't know. It's normalization. It's a, I repeat, MBS doesn't care about the Palestinians. It doesn't care about the Israelis. They don't care, the Saudis, about us. Let's be, they didn't need us, 75. We don't need them. They want, MBS want legitimacy. Where he can have this legitimacy with the rapprochement with he 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 knew that with the Chinese in the Russian he, he will not go uh, far away. So he said he has nothing to lose to 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 say I want peace with Israel at condition one two three. They want the Arabs. Uh, Johnny, I want to tell you something. You you may be shocked. The Arab regime don't care about the Palestinians. Doesn't care. They hate them. Not they don't like them, they hate the Palestinians. But in front of the camera, we say the proper free Palestine and all the... Let's just unpack that, and because I've seen it for myself. It's also a political idea, because Palestinianism is a nationalism, whereas we understand this as Jews. The Gulf Arabs are a nation, they're a religion, they're a distinction, whereas the Palestinian cause is nationalist. That's very different. One's secular and one's religious. Uh, I always ask my uh, followers, uh, they say that Palestine is occupied. So, okay, I ask them if it's occupied from Israel, when it happens and what is the name of the uh, uh, president of the Palestine that we occupied his country? And what is the name of the chief of staff, Palestinians? Then I will ask, I ask them, give me one author, one uh, writer, during the 18th century, Palestinians in the 18th century, there was no Palestinian. There were the, the Ottomans were before us. There was it's, the, Palestinians. Something was created by the KGB in Egypt. Abdel Nasser 
to take our land. I can actually reveal a, an actual fact is that the last king of Palestine was George VI. That we can say without a matter of any doubt. Eddie, 80 years ago in my continent, they started burning books, then they burnt buildings, and then they burnt people. And here we are, three generations later in Sweden, in the name of liberal democracy, they want to start burning the Koran and the Torah again. What is Sweden doing? It's crazy. It's a, a, a disaster. As a Jewish people, we condemn burning the Koran. We strongly condemn burning not only the Koran, uh, the, the, the Evangel, the uh, Torah. Uh, we, we hate... Or any flags. Or any also flags. We hate uh, uh, this uh, extremism. This is fanatic. Uh, when you burn book, eventually you will burn uh, people. The Quran is uh, out of the game. We must not uh, burn anything uh, that uh, people believes. If you are Buddhist or if you are, uh, uh, I don't know, this is unacceptable, especially for us Jewish people condemned the burning of the Quran. Do you think Israel should break off diplomatic links to Sweden? <clears throat> well, Eli Cohen spoke with the Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs, the Swedish minister, and yes, we are uh, against this. We should uh, punish the uh, Swedish. Yes, of course, we should punish them because they will lead us to a civil war to a war in Europe between Muslims and uh, uh, Christians. And, uh, this is not democracy. This is anarchy. Does uh, the Swedish uh, accept that we will burn the LGBT flag? They will accept, for example, or their flags. If Can, can I burn the Swedish flag in uh, Stockholm? Do they accept? I repeated, we, the Jewish people, are against burning the Quran. We respect the Quran. Sweden must be punished. Eddie, finally, I want to talk about this new strengthening of normalization with Morocco, which involves the Israeli acceptance of Morocco's annexation of the Western Sahara. Now, I spoke to Ambassador Doré Gold about his remarkable peace deal with Jordan, which he started in opposition and then when Netanyahu came to power, it became peace in 1994. And he was the sort of diplomat, the sort of politician who said that Israel would not involve itself in anyone else's domestic policies. All it was interested in was making peace and security on Israel's behalf with whoever the country was, even if they hated Israel, and a lot of people in Jordan hate Israel. What business is it of Israel to deal with a piece of sand a thousand miles away? I've never heard this before. Why is Israel involved in someone else's uh, annexation? I will tell you, Morocco joined the Abraham Accords two years ago. But until now, there was there's no embassy and there's no ambassador. 
this is the first condition that Morocco uh, insisted. insisted. Trump administration recognized the Sahara that is Morocco. Israel had to do it and they didn't do it. So that's why the relations were not formally, uh, you know, there's no embassy. There's no ambassador. It's a bureau, bureau de liaison. It's not an embassy yet. The ambassador, David uh, Govrin, didn't meet the king. He didn't receive the... The Hechsher, the stamp of authority. The stamp of authority. He's that ambassador. All what we needed to do, to send a letter and to say, <laughs> I declare that the... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> what have we... Uh, uh, but this is new for Israel. <laughs> Wait a minute. No, um, let's speak about the Algerian. Algerian must anti-Semitic people that exist in the world. So it's okay for us to side with Morocco. <laughs> they, they killed many Jews. They kicked out hundreds of thousands of Jews. They took a synagogue. They, they, they exposed Jews. They are our enemies. They are, I will tell you something shocking. They are more, they hate us more than the Palestinians do. I read... That's what, quite an achievement. And they are very violent. You can see in the French, in Paris, what they do. Every St. Sylvester, they burn more than 800 cars. So we didn't lose anything. We only wrote a piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> but, this is so, but this is quite a new idea for Israel to use its political influence under a little bit of duress to affect someone else's domestic policy. It's, it's slight, it's new, it's new for Israel, isn't it? First of all, don't undermine Israel. Israel has power. I'm Israel. not saying that, but Israel didn't normally involve itself. Well, this is politics. The politics is yeah, dirty. Okay. okay. Uh, uh, um, look, Israel has a lot of friends in Africa. The Moroccans need our Israeli legitimation or Israeli acceptance of the Sahara. So, the Moroccan diplomacy will, will use this uh, Israeli acceptance of the Sahara. So why? Uh, so that's why the relations were st stuck. Sure, it had reached an impasse. Yes, and uh, uh, and we had to write Do this something. letter. Write a letter, <laughs> stick a stamp on it, put it in the post, and everyone's happy. We didn't uh, lose uh, anything. We didn't lose anything. The Algerians are our enemies. And that's they kicked us last year from the. African Union. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's okay to fight them. Yeah. Eddie Cohen, it is an absolute pleasure. And because we're face-to-face, -face, we can have an even more deeper discussion. Thank you very much, as always, Thank for you. joining me on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. And I'm sure our listeners will enjoy this uh, episode very much. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you very much. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, buy him a coffee. He loves coffee at ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. Are you playing catch up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests recently. Here's Jonathan Friedland on The Escape Artist, the life story of Rudolf Verber, who as a young man escaped Auschwitz. He pointed an accusing finger 
at people who I think we all would rather were not part of the accused. So I think there is a comfortable way of telling the Second World War story, which is all evil resided in Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler and the Germans and the Nazis, and everyone else was on the side of good, you know, and meaning the Allies, the United States, Britain, everybody else. Now, that's not true. It's more complicated. It can't be. It can't be. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, known to some as the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, journalists. And often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is brought to you with Dangor Education. 